This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Sharon Kinney? Sharon Kinney was born in Independence, Missouri on November 30, 1939. Her mother was named Doris and her father, Eugene. Several years after her birth, the family moved to Washington State. But at the age of 15, Sharon returned to Missouri. When she was 16, she started dating a 22-year-old college student named James Kinney. But then he returned to college in Utah. He was enrolled at Brigham Young University. Sharon wrote a letter to James stating that she was pregnant, which prompted him to return to Missouri. James and Sharon married on October 18, 1956. The couple moved to Provo, Utah, and Sharon joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I will refer to as LDS. James and Sharon had a formal wedding in Utah in 1957 and returned to Missouri not long after this. James found work as an electrical engineer. Sharon would occasionally babysit for money. The couple would eventually have two children, a daughter named Dana and a son named Troy. Sharon had difficulty regulating her spending habits. She would frequently go shopping when James was at work. Eventually, she started having extramarital affairs. James was unhappy with the relationship. Not only was Sharon burning through money, but he suspected her of having an affair. He approached his parents on March 18, 1960, and told them that Sharon consented to a divorce as long as he gave her $1,000 a month, the house, and custody of the children. His parents were members of the LDS Church and were opposed to James getting a divorce. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. The next day, March 19, 1960, around 5.30 p.m., Sharon called the police. They arrived to find James dead from a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. Sharon told them that James was sleeping in the bedroom when she heard a single gunshot. She walked into the room and found Dana, who was two and a half years old, on the bed next to James holding a high standard 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol. James was the owner of this gun. Sharon saw blood and notified the police. During their investigation, the police did not test anyone for gunshot residue. They could not find fingerprints on the pistol. Using a similar gun, they tested Dana's ability to pull the trigger. She was able to do it. In addition, family members and neighbors said that James would regularly allow Dana to play with his firearms. So I'm guessing that even if James had survived, he was out of the running for the Safe Parent of the Year award. The death of Sharon's husband was ruled accidental homicide. Sharon collected $29,000 from her husband's life insurance policy. She tried to get the pistol back from the police, but they would not return it to her. I guess that pistol was associated with a lot of special memories for Sharon. On October 18, 1960, Sharon used $3,200 of the insurance money to purchase a Ford Thunderbird from a salesperson named Walter Jones. Walter and Sharon started having an affair Sharon was interested in marrying Walter, but he was already married to a woman named Patricia. 
Sharon told Walter that she was pregnant with his child, believing that he would divorce his wife and marry her. Instead, he terminated the affair with Sharon. Sharon was telling the truth about being pregnant with Walter's child. On May 26, Patricia Jones received a phone call from Sharon and met with her in the evening. Patricia never returned home. Walter filed a missing persons report. Sharon would later say that she met with Patricia that evening, but dropped her off near Walter's house. Walter met with Sharon and held a key to her throat in a threatening manner. He demanded to know where Patricia was. Sharon contacted a man named John Boldis, who she had an affair with in the past. She asked John to help her search for Patricia. A few hours later, Sharon and John claimed that they found a woman's body a mile outside of town. John said it was his idea to search that area. The police investigated and determined that the dead woman was Patricia Jones. She had been shot four times with a 22 caliber pistol. The police searched extensively for the pistol, but could not find it. They discovered that Sharon asked a man she worked with to buy her a 22 caliber pistol. At her residence, the police found an empty box that may have contained a firearm. Sharon told the police that when she was on a trip to Washington, she lost the gun. Later, she said that the gun disappeared. Sharon was arrested and charged with murdering Patricia Jones and James Kinney. On July 18, she was released on bail. On July 16, 1961, she gave birth to a daughter named Marla. Sharon was to be tried separately for the two murders. The first trial was for the murder of Patricia Jones. The prosecution did not have the gun, and they could not prove that the missing gun was the murder weapon. Sharon was found not guilty. I think she really made a positive impression on the jury. One juror even asked for her autograph. After the verdict, Sharon was returned to jail to await her second murder trial. This trial started in January 1962. A key witness against Sharon was John Boldis. He said that Sharon offered to pay him $1,000 to kill James, but noted that Sharon may have been joking. Sharon was convicted of murder. In April 1962, she was sentenced to life in prison. In March 1963, Sharon's conviction was reversed on appeal. She was released on bond in July. In March 1964, Sharon's second trial for the death of James Kinney started. A few days later, a mistrial was declared because one of the jurors had once retained the prosecutor as an attorney. The third trial started in June of 1964. It ended in a mistrial after the jury failed to reach a unanimous verdict. A fourth trial was scheduled for October 1964, but Sharon did not attend this one. Instead, she fled to Mexico with a lover named Samuel Francis Puglisi. Sharon was in possession of one or two guns and purchased another one after arriving in Mexico. Sharon and Samuel checked into a hotel. Sharon left the hotel on the night of September 18, 1964, and met a man named Francisco Ordonez at a bar. She left the bar with Francisco, and they traveled to his hotel room, where Sharon shot him to death with a pistol. An employee of the hotel entered the room after hearing the gunshots. Sharon shot him too. He was struck in the shoulder, but managed to lock Sharon in the room and flee. The police arrived and arrested Sharon. She told them that she only went to Francisco's hotel room to see photographs. Francisco made a sexual advance, and she fired her gun just to scare him, but ended up striking him multiple times in the chest. 
She explained shooting the hotel employee by saying that she thought he was attacking her as well. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com In the hotel room that Sharon and Samuel had rented, the police found the weapon that had been used to kill Patricia Jones. Sharon could not be tried for the murder of Patricia again due to double jeopardy. On October 18, 1965, Sharon was convicted of murdering Francisco and sentenced to 10 years in prison. She appealed her sentence, and it was extended to 13 years. On December 7, 1969, prison officials noticed that Sharon was missing at the 5 p.m. roll call. The guards were not too alarmed, but when she missed a second roll call later that evening, they grew concerned. In Mexico, escaping from prison is not a crime, but Sharon still needed to complete her sentence. Therefore, a manhunt was initiated. They really didn't try too hard to find her, they gave up searching on December 18. I guess it was a lot of work, like searching and getting the dogs out and all that. They probably figured they had enough prisoners already. They didn't really need another one. This also may have been part of their plan to address prison overcrowding. Now moving to my analysis. Was Sharon Kinney guilty of all the crimes that she was accused of? I think she was guilty in reality of all three murders. But as far as the murder of her husband, James Kinney, it's difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. If James allowed his daughter to play with firearms, and she was capable of pulling the trigger, then reasonable doubt exists. Here are my thoughts on a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one is Sharon's personality. She was high in openness to experience, low in conscientiousness, high in extroversion, low in agreeableness, and high in neuroticism. She had a number of psychopathic traits like deceptiveness, impulsivity, irresponsibility, no empathy, being manipulative, and a lack of remorse. She had a number of grandiose narcissistic characteristics like social boldness, superficial charm, envy, and self-confidence. 
grandiose narcissism is associated with an increased desire for casual sex, uncommitted sex, more lifetime sexual partners, and a greater desire for short-term mates. All these apply to Sharon Kinney. I'm not aware of any diagnosis in this case. It seems like Sharon endorsed a number of cluster B personality traits. So she had traits from antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, and histrionic personality. But it is not clear if she endorsed enough symptoms for any diagnosis. Item number two is how Sharon came up with the idea to kill her husband, James. About nine months before James Kinney was shot and killed, a woman in Manassas, Virginia, named Lillian Chastain, called the police and reported her husband had been shot. She said her two-year-old daughter shot him. In February 1960, the month before James was killed, Lillian confessed to the police that she was the killer. If not for her confession, she never would have been caught. I think that Sharon looked at Lillian's situation and assessed Lillian as being gullible and weak-minded. Sharon probably thought that Lillian came up with the perfect crime, but then foolishly talked to the police. Sharon realized that she could execute the same crime, but not make the same mistake as Lillian. Item number three is Sharon's motive for murdering Patricia Jones. I think this was simply a matter of Patricia getting in Sharon's way. Sharon wanted to be with Walter, and she wasn't taking no for an answer. This particular murder really demonstrates Sharon's lack of insight. She was successful in avoiding accountability for murdering her husband, but then she chose to commit another murder. She was careful with each crime independently, but did not understand how the pattern of deaths looks suspicious. Item number four is Sharon's motive for the murder of Francisco Ordonez in Mexico. I think this was simply a robbery gone wrong. Sharon probably did not intend on shooting him, but when she produced the weapon, he resisted. I think Sharon shot the hotel staff member in an effort to escape the hotel. She knew that if the police investigated, they would realize she was a fugitive. Item number five is the escape from the Mexican prison. There are many theories about how Sharon escaped. For example, she escaped from prison without any assistance, she escaped with the help of a lover, or she bribed prison officials. I think that bribery is the most likely method of escape for Sharon, especially considering that a door she may have used to exit was found unlocked. Bribery is a fairly common version of parole in Mexico. It's so common that I picture a visitor form that has these items that someone can check off, like I'm here for a job, I'm here to visit a prisoner, or I'm here to bribe a guard. Below that item, the form reads, ask about our multi-bribe discount. Or maybe something like, bribe the guards four times and get the fifth bribe for free. In Mexico, escaping from prison is not illegal, as I mentioned, although someone can be prosecuted for other crimes committed during an escape, like harming somebody or breaking something. Mexican officials say that escape is not a crime because the basic desire for freedom is implicit inside every person. I think it's also not illegal because it's a major source of revenue for prison officials. This brings me to the last item, number six. What happened to Sharon Kinney? At the time of making this video, if Sharon is still alive, she would be 82. I think it's reasonable to believe that Sharon traveled to Central or South America. She learned to speak Spanish in prison, therefore she could have hidden for years. Sharon's ability to manipulate men may have helped her to get out of prison, 
and helped her to settle down somewhere else, but her tendency toward criminality would not have just vanished. I'm surprised that she wasn't arrested again and brought to justice. I think this supports the idea that Sharon did not live too long after escaping from prison, because for Sharon, living was synonymous with committing crimes. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.